Hey, gang, if you are in or around Austin, Texas, on March 8th of 2023, I hope you'll come see me and some incredible guests at South by Southwest EDU. We are doing a session live from South by Southwest EDU. Uh, myself representing uh, the crew at NAF.org, along with Dr. Elizabeth Bishop, City University of New York Youth Studies Program and Global Turning Points founder, uh, Dr. Kylie Pepler from University of California at Irvine, and Dr. Sangita Shrestova from Annenberg School of Communications at USC. The session is called Research Storytelling for the Digital Age, and it's going to be a blast. Before we get started, let a couple friends know about No Such Thing Podcast before you move on to whatever's next, and head over wherever you downloaded the show and offer a five-star review. The algorithm and I will be grateful. Thanks so much. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. If you made a list of all the things you've learned online, how many items do you think would be on the list at this point in your life? Mine includes interior painting, basic electronics, physiology, audio engineering, comparative literature, executing a barbershop quality fade, meditation practices, and like most of us in the last two years, I think I've at least completed my first semester in epidemiology. You may have noticed that I'm not making a distinction between something formal like an online course and something informal and self-directed like doing an oil change on a minibike. When you make your list in your head, notice whether you're drawing a line between formal and informal. What purpose does the distinction serve in your mind? Do you dismiss one as being less valuable? How do you define value? Do you dismiss another as being stuffy or impractical? You may ask yourself, why are we repeating patterns online that haven't always served us offline? In school and out of school, formal and informal, hard skills and soft skills, mindsets and competencies. You may ask yourself, how did I get here? Yes. What if you and I put it all back? All of what we've learned, let's pretend there's a way to take the skills and knowledge out of ourselves and reorganize it so that it's easier for the next person to learn. What would that even look like? Is it a storage locker? Is it one of those automated warehouses that ships a zillion packages a day? What's the experience? A festival, a library, a marketplace? Maybe it's Gringotts Bank from Harry Potter. I can't imagine going through all that each time I need to learn a new fishing knot. Amir Nathu is CEO of OutSchool, a marketplace for live online classes for K-12 learners. Well, hi there, Mark. My name is Amir Nathu. I'm co-founder and head of OutSchool. Um, and OutSchool is a marketplace of live online classes for kids. And I'm excited to be here today talking to you. There were a lot of people who worried during COVID that the world would get too used to virtual learning, that we'd lose sight of so many elements of live instruction that are developmentally important. Well, throughout most of pre-K through post-secondary, we didn't lose that appetite. In some ways, it was true that in this case, absence made the heart grow fonder. But I'd like to think that in addition to being grateful to get back to school, some of us also might be grateful that the last few years have been 
a time to explore and self-direct learning pathways differently than we've ever had to before. And out of that need came a lot of discoveries about what things a digital landscape can offer. Some people are finding space online that can supplement what they learn and when they can do it. We've talked for decades now about personalized and self-directed learning, but as hard as we've tried to concoct a recipe for those, is it possible none of them would be as successful as a global pandemic for helping learners step outside of institutional offerings in search of what engages them or what they need most in the moment? It makes sense with virtual course platforms now being accessed by hundreds of millions of learners, some of them with a billion dollar valuation, that we would be exploring how those tools can affect younger learners. Entrepreneur technologist Amir Nathu was betting on this model long before COVID. OutSchool was founded in 2015, but now on the other side, it was fun to hear from him about what OutSchool learned in the last few years and how educators and learners on the platform are benefiting. Today, OutSchool offers more than 140,000 live online classes to more than a million learners in 183 countries worldwide. Enjoy my talk with Amir Nathu. So, Amir, I'm excited to do this. I wanted to start and uh, get you to tell me a little bit about your own school experience. Yeah, so my school experience was in the UK. I, I grew up in England, and I had a very um, traditional school experience that was actually like fantastic. I went to a uh, state-funded secondary school that was selective. Um, it was an excellent, excellent school. I was very lucky. And um, then I um, studied engineering at Cambridge and um, you know, had a great time. And, you know, it, it's kind of a little bit funny that I'm now working in alternative education and working to enable learning experiences that are a little bit unlike my schooling. But it's actually, um, you know, the fact that I did have such a great traditional education and yet I found myself using skills and learnings that I had not acquired through that great education and those have been so impactful in my life that actually led me um, and is a main inspiration founding out school but uh, yeah I had a very uh, very traditional education in, in the UK that's great where whereabouts in the UK were you so I grew up in Watford which is um, you know northwest London uh, maybe 30 minutes outside of London and I went to school in a in a nearby area uh, called Buckinghamshire, a town mm-hmm. called Amersham. Um, so yeah, I actually commuted to go to this school because it was uh, yeah, a particularly kind of good school that I was lucky enough to to get into. Um, so yeah, suburbs of London. Very nice. So you were at Cambridge studying electrical engineering, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. That right. And and. Did you imagine, were you there and thinking, one day I'm going to commit to working on a platform where kids can explore the science of farts? <laughs> no, uh, I did not expect that on multiple different levels. <laughs> I think the parts that were more expected was, you know, I was already into software at that stage. Um, you know, I wasn't studying it mm. formally or in college, but I had become very interested in computers and computer programming from a young age outside of school. And so, um, you know, working in software and in technology isn't a surprise. Starting companies isn't really a surprise. From a young age, I aspired to be an entrepreneur. My, mm. my father was a teacher 
And he also, um, at times in his life, kind of worked in the family business. Hmm. And so he was always coming back with new technology and you know, ideas for businesses. So those parts aren't surprising. But to think that you know, I would now run a learning platform that has like awesome classes, which are hilarious and inspire kids and also you know, uh, keep parents happy with the quality of the science. And hmm. classes, like you pointed out, Science of Farts, is, is somewhat unexpected. Yeah. I, I noticed in your, uh, as I was doing research, people love to bring that class up. Um, and I contemplate, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to take the easy way and uh, mention the science of farts. But then I thought, you know what? I am going to mention the science of farts in part because I think it's brilliant. If people, you know, if this is the doorway through which uh, people can realize the sort of playfulness and opportunity in engaging young people in mixed sort of digital and um, uh, mixed learning environments, then so be it. I'm going to mention the science of farts. So um, we got, <laughs> but we got it out of our system. Pun pun intended. Uh, so so. A lot of the catalog for OutSchool feels a lot like things that would ordinarily happen after school or out of school. And it made me wonder not just whether the name is deliberate in that way, but also how OutSchool distinguishes itself from other pioneers in the space like Khan Academy. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you picked up on the name. You know, the, the origin of the name is, you know, the phrase that we started OutSchool with, which is that we want to create more learning experiences outside of the traditional school environment mm. and outside of the traditional school environment can mean like after school, like outside in terms of time. It can also mean outside in terms of curriculum. Um, and, you know, not only providing classes in the traditional, um, core curriculum subjects, but also, you know, anything that kids would be inspired to learn. Um, and so, you know, that has been our philosophy from the start, the, this idea that, you know, human knowledge and human inspiration is so, so broad that learning can be innately playful, which, you know, we, we talked about with, and there's other examples of classes where that really comes to the fore. And that if we can enable um, many more learning experiences, then we'll, there'll be something there that's going to inspire any kid. So no matter you know, what your interests um, or, you know, where you're at in your learning journey, you will find inspiration. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a way in which we're quite different from um, other um, you know, ed tech companies or educa educational institutions where more normally, um, you know, the institutions kind of set a curriculum or focus on a particular set of subjects rather than being this open marketplace. So that's quite different about what we do. And, you know, the other big difference is also the learning formats. You know, we do live online classes in small groups, and that's become much more prevalent today, um, especially, um, you know, in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, but when we first launched in 2017, that was very novel and you know even today uh, the majority of um, uh, work or um, opportunities or learning experiences prior to education um, tend to revolve around like content in-person learning experiences or asynchronous interactions rather than live interactions hmm. so those two pieces are, are kind of what makes our school different so for let's let's talk about the experience for those who don't know it describe what the learning experience feels like if i'm a, a student pulling up to the marketplace and out school uh, for the first time? 
Well, um, when you're coming to OutSchool for the first time, um, you are either coming to our website because you, you've heard of OutSchool and want to look at the catalog and find something specific, or you know someone's recommended a specific class. But either way, you know the first thing to do is um, match the class to the needs and the interests of the learner. And it's usually the parent doing that with you know, the learner at their side, um, depending on the you know, age of the, of, of the learner um, uh, affects how, how involved they are in that choice, selection process. And, um, you know, uh, parents sign up for the class um, and this can be anything from like a one-time class that meets at a single meeting mm. um, to like a semester-long course uh, that meets um, every week or multiple times, times a week in the semester or, you know, an, just an ongoing club or discussion group that meets once a week and you can start at any point or, or leave at any point. And um, then when you get into class, um, they take place over Zoom um, so it's integrating the website to make it simple. Um, you click a link, you arrive in the class, and there are between you know one and um, twelve kids. Usually, it's you know a small group, like three to five kids, hmm. and a teacher. And you know the kids and teacher are joining from you know anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. So you're in class with kids you would not normally be in class with, um, learning the topic that you selected um, to to learn. And then the actual experience within the class um, varies a lot depending on the subject. And it really is um, the teacher's creation. So, you know, teachers craft the learning experience according to the topic. You know, some you'll have um, a period of lecture followed by exercises for like you know, maybe round the room discussion. Um, others are, are like very interactive from the start. If you're doing kind of a drama class, like we mm. have a very popular kind of Harry Potter improv. Uh, class where um, uh, where which is like yeah you know, straight in there. So so the the actual learning experience is a combination of technology and then the kind of design that the craft that the teacher puts into it. Beautiful. So who are the teachers? So we have about nine thousand active teachers on the site, and um, uh, they vary from being uh, classroom teachers who are um, teaching on out school on the site to former classroom teachers. Um, who uh, maybe you know, left the profession, um, maybe start a family and then want to um, you know, teach again, but maybe don't want to have uh, want more flexibility or, or mm. kind of part-time work, um, to like full-time like online teaching entrepreneurs who found they're just able to create a very successful business and uh, you know, uh, have high earnings and have created their, their business in our school. Um, and then also you know, a, another kind of profile is um, someone who's maybe not a trained teacher or qualified teacher, but is teaching their domain. So we have like a vet teaching cat anatomy um, or, you know, yoga instructors and mindfulness instructors teaching those kind of topics to kids mm. as well. So we have a vetting process to approve teachers, but we don't necessarily need um, teaching credentials depending on the depending on the kind of subjects and the kind of teaching that, uh, that is happening on the platform. Yeah. I think if you're anyone, not just a... So for educators, I can imagine OutSchool being a wonderful sort of uh, uh, liberating <laughs> moment of like, <laughs> I am going to teach exactly what I want to teach. Um, but for, I feel like anybody would come to OutSchool and think think about the things that they have to teach, um, which I think is one of the most powerful things about it because it isn't that often that you have an object outside of maybe having kids of your own where you you're forced into that moment or not not forced but sort of organically this moment emerges where you you 
run through a list in your mind of things you'd love to bring to the world or to young learners um, that they're not going to get in the context of the school day. That's that's where my head went right away. And, um, and you know, and I've been in the space for a long time. Um, but still, I looked at it and was like, oh, you know, it'd be fun to do something, you know, um, fill in the blank. So, so yeah. it, it made me wonder for you whether um, the unexpected consequence, or maybe by design, um, the consequence of that is that you all need to do more to help support people into the practice of education and um, teaching in this context. Is that something that you thought of right away or that came along the way? Or is it something that, um, you know, you all decided early on to outsource elsewhere and count on the fact that people are going to show up with chops from someplace else? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of both. Some of it's design and some of it's emergent. You know, the piece that, um, you know, is designed into the system from the start was this idea that, um, you know, one of the main value propositions for teachers of out school is that teach what you've always wanted to teach. Mm. And the theory being that if teachers are like teaching subjects that they're genuinely inspired about in ways that they want to, then that enthusiasm will be contagious. And we found from the start, you know, that was true. And, you know, that's one of the you know, benefits of platform for both learners and teachers is, mm. is that idea that, you know, there's a blank slate. We don't say teach this. It's like you decide what you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it. And um, and the most successful classes tend to be the ones that um, you know really you know, there's a lot of care and craft behind them. And then you know at the start um, we we didn't know how the marketplace was going to emerge. We didn't know what learners were going to want, and we didn't know what kind of teachers would come to the platform. So we left it quite open. And, um, you know, in the early days, kind of hand, hand recruited like a small group of teachers and started experimenting. And then, you know, um, over time, we um, established kind of more guidelines about what works. And we also realized pretty early on that we're going to have to put some boundaries in place. Like there were certain kinds of kind of contents where, you know, we needed to um, keep the trust of parents mm. and things like, you know, uh, um, policies uh, in place such as, you know, if you're going to teach a science class, that should include mention of evolution, mm. but it must include mention of evolution. And um, started developing um, principles and policies um, around um, making sure that the, the content on the site you know, would be regarded by a majority of experts as being you know, the right content. That's not to say it's, not, it's still a, uh, an open marketplace, but it's just we put certain uh, policies and boundaries in place. Mm. And then as part of that, we realized that you know, in the early days, you know, we were only attracting and, and reaching out to um, people who are already teaching, um, so you know, or, or experienced teachers, and we wanted to open it up to more and more teachers and really scale it up. And that meant we also had to put policies in place around you know what kind of experience, what kind of qualifications mm. are needed, and then also training so that we can make sure that we're helping teachers like really. Um, uh, uh, understand both the technology side of the platform and you know help with the actual teaching practices and, and sharing. And so over time, we developed you know a whole team out school you know focused on class quality and teaching quality, and we have a um, uh, application process for teachers, an approval process for classes, and then um, uh, trainings um, that are available so that teachers can continually up level their craft. 
Um, but more importantly, even I think than all of that is community and shared best practices. Because, you know, yes, we have teaching experience um, uh, on our team, but I'm not a teacher, I'm a technologist. Mm. Um, and we're a technology company. And um, you know, our, our goal um, uh, has been to um, provide that platform and then to you know, have teachers share with each other. So we have vibrant kind of community groups where teachers can share best practices. So there's like several different layers to, uh, to what we do in order to kind of you know, help teachers be successful as well as put boundaries on the platform to um, you know, make sure that uh, it's safe and that we maintain families' trust. Terrific. So we're half a year in to what feels at least like the most, uh, air quotes, normal uh, school year that we've had in a long <laughs> time. And I wonder what OutSchool has learned about what trends from the pandemic are actually true long term. Yeah, you know, it's been a really interesting time because there's been so much um, volatility um, in our community in terms of, you know, the very sudden shift uh, into um, COVID and everything that that meant mm -hmm. to schools reopening. And now, like you say, kind of the first normalish school here, <laughs> it hasn't felt very normal, honestly, from from my perspective. No. Um, you know, there still seems to be a lot of change Um and challenge um, within the within the school system that that affects um, you know our community too. Um, a couple of the key learnings that um, I uh, have seen over the past year is um, you know the persistence in the growth of homeschooling. Um, so you know, and people homeschool for many different reasons. One of our earlier adopter communities was secular homeschools specifically. Mm -hmm. um, people who are doing it because they had neurodiverse kids or um uh you know twice exceptional kids or they just weren't happy with kind of the schooling options in their um, local area um and you know during the pandemic you know a, a lot of families became you know um un, 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 unintentional homeschoolers mm. and for some proportion of that families uh those families they have found that um taking an alternative path um works better for their kids and so You've seen this kind of rise in homeschooling interest, then a fall post-pandemic, but the new baseline level um, is higher than before. Mm. Um, then um, in terms of you know, um, uh, how out-school is used as a supplement to traditional schooling, um, what we've seen is, whereas before the pandemic, um, many families used our service to help kids pursue interests or discover new interests. So more focused on um, subjects outside the normal curriculum. Now there is much more appears to be much more concern about just core subjects. Like let's just make sure that um, yeah my child is keeping up in core subject, doesn't have gaps, or um, is sufficiently challenged. And so you know as categories, you know math and English have just been rising as proportion, mm. uh, and um, we're seeing that shift. And I, I think that reflects you know general concern um about you know um learning loss through the pandemic uh, i'm sure like lots has been said and, and studied about that but we're seeing that within our marketplace too that makes a lot of sense so has that has that shifted um how does the how does out school respond when a trend like that comes up right so if parents and students are looking specifically for 
core subjects, how do you all pivot to be able to make more of that available? Well, this is one of the great strengths of a marketplace because we don't really see responding to trends like that as needing us to pivot. Because we're a marketplace with a huge variety of subjects, Mm. including the interest-based subjects, including all the academic subjects for all grade levels, so that the the question then becomes one of emphasis. So we provide information and insights to our teachers saying, hey, here are the subject areas and the specific types of classes that seem to be more in demand right now. And by providing that data and those prompts, that prompts these 9,000 teachers to say, okay, well, I'm going to like craft any new classes I um, create or maybe um, edit the ones I have to better serve what the parent needs are right now. Mm. And then at the same time, on the parent side, um, in our search and discovery experience on the site, you know, if you go there, there's these categories, we highlight particular categories and you know, we make editorial decisions about like which ones go first um, and how we, um, uh, how we rank the subcategories. And so based on the insights that we, we see from parents, we adjust those to emphasize different parts of the marketplace. That doesn't mean that, you know, we, we don't have, um, you know, uh, interest-based classes. We have, you know, 140,000 classes. We still have like the full range, but we just like alter uh, maybe the emphasis. Um, and, um, you know, that allows us to be more responsive to kind of parent needs over time mm. than a different model that where you might have to say, oh, wow, well, we now need to design a whole new curriculum because we don't have that or, um, or yeah, we'll build something from scratch. That's not the, that's not the way we, we need to operate as a marketplace. It's one of the big strengths of a, of a marketplace-based model. That's why we chose a marketplace-based model at the start because, you know, one of the other hypotheses behind OutSchool was um, that it just isn't structurally possible for a single institution like a school to meet all kids' needs all of the time. And so there needs to be a kind of a flexible offering to fill in all the gaps. But what those mm. gaps are varies by kids, varies by school, varies by a whole bunch of criteria. So it had to be like very flexible and dynamic. And that's the real real strength of a, yeah. of a market-based model. So does um, does the educator who teaches something in out school that's particularly popular, so like let's say algebra spikes and they're filling way more seats over the course of a semester, does that become lucrative for that educator or is that, is that, how does that work? Yes, it it can become very lucrative for an educator because these are group classes. So if you're filling up classes, um, you're filling up a class with 10 kids um, and charging, you know, 10 to $15 an hour, Mm -hmm. then, you know, that becomes a, a very high hourly rate. And then if you're filling a lot of these classes that can result in very high earnings. So we have educators on our school who are earning, you know, many educators actually are earning $100,000 plus mm. um, and um, at, you know, at a, at a high hourly rate. Um, uh, obviously, it varies depending on the popularity of, of, of subjects and, and um, the kind of track record of the teacher. Um, and then, um, you know, some teachers form organizations that actually, you know, bring other teachers on board to teach the same things once they've established it. So mm. there's an ability to kind of, scale up and kind of grow um, a business um, on out school as well as being an individual teacher. Yeah, that's not for most teachers, but Mm. but that is a possibility. Um, uh, You know, I I think one thing that's different, though, compared with, say, um, you know, Udemy or some of these other content-based sites, it's not like we have, like, one teacher or a handful of teachers who are serving most of the students Mm. and 
um, you know, taking most of the earnings because these are live classes. There's a natural kind of like limit to how much any one teacher can fulfill in terms of demand. Um, and that's actually, I think, right for learning because I don't think there's one best teacher in the world for any particular subject. I think there might be a best teacher for your kid at mm. that time. Mm. And and it's important, to, you know, so it's not like there's the top math teacher in our school. It's like there's a, there's a group of teachers who are doing very well teaching math classes and out school. It's a matter of matching the kids, the right teacher who's going to resonate with them. Yeah. So over a million kids on the platform so far. Um, is there an update to that number? Yeah, no updates yet. It's grown so fast, though, like yeah. 80,000 pre-COVID to, to over a million. So it's tremendous kind of privilege and honor to serve so many families. Um, you know, I, I will say that we have an ambition to serve many more families because we believe that with this kind of learning, there's just a massive ability to kind of personalize education and fill in the gaps. Yeah. And yeah, there's 1.3 billion kids of K-12 age worldwide. And we've served 1 million kids predominantly in the US and Canada. And, um, you know, uh, there's, uh, I think, a, an incredible opportunity to, um, you know, serve kids globally. And we haven't really started that. We're only just kind of starting um, to reach out and, and actively um, you know, bring teachers and, and students in, in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, the, the impact of a platform where kids can learn with other kids from around the world, I think can be tremendous because, you know, I think that builds empathy. If you've had a positive learning experience at a young age mm. with people outside your geographical vicinity from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic racial backgrounds, you know, that's what really gets me excited about the idea of a, a global community of learning. Um, you know, what, what would it be like to grow up in a world where you have your local community, but then on a very regular basis, you're interacting with kids from other countries and, and other environments. I think um, that would that could lead to tremendous benefits for society. So, so staying on benefits for a moment, one of the things that we talk a lot about in the U.S. and um, I think is also part of the experience in the U.K. as well, <clears throat> and. Um, I'm not sure, but we can look into other parts of the world. But but we talk a lot about what I'm going to call the enrichment gap um, for a lot of families in the U.S. And when you look at data, and I can put some of this in the show notes, when you look at some of the research that's been done on who spends money on sup supplementary tech, supplementary programs, um, it tends to be a, a pretty significant gap in um, – in the in in the income of the family that can participate, so I I wonder you know you all are a young company so I know that um, getting to some of those priorities uh, can take time and take growth before you can really figure out how you're going to build traction there. But is that an aspiration for you? I've heard you talk a little bit about impact in other interviews and things, and it just it. It's. I wonder. I wondered when I knew that we were going to get together. To what extent you've thought about um, this as a platform with a purpose of um, sort of ra raising all all ships and with one tide. 
Yes, yes. Um, you know, we 100 have that ambition. Recognizing also the challenges of achieving that ambition purely as a you know a for-profit company. But here's how I I think about it.、Mm. Um, you know, as it stands, the majority of families on outschool do have to pay out of pocket for outschool classes, and you know that means that only certain families who have the necessary disposable income can participate, and that's a problem because it causes you know the kind of gaps that you were you were talking about. The the one thing、um, that we do have though that、um, improves the situation is the the nature of the economics of small group live online classes. Compared with in person classes, we don't have to pay for physical facilities, and compared with one on one tutoring, the cost of the teacher's time can be split between families. So the price points of these classes tend to be much lower than alternative enrichment programs,、mm. and that means that you know we are broadening access, even though. It, Can't be kind of 100% access, you know, purely based on 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 the need to pay out of pocket. But that's one structural advantage we have in addressing this problem. Then, you know,、uh, what we want to do over time is increasingly create options for parents to participate, for families to participate in these classes without paying out of pocket. And you know, a couple of the initial avenues we have in place for that、um, are partnerships um, and um, a non-profit arm. So during the pandemic, we outschool.org specifically with this problem in mind, the realization that there was, you know, plenty of families who were going to need outschool, especially during the pandemic, that、mm. they would not be going to be able to afford it. And we funded it from outschool, the company, and have also raised external funding, and that continues.、Um, but in the long run, I think the only structural solution for you know problems like the enrichment gap involve、um, state funding. Yeah, at scale. Um, what I would like to see is, you know, half the enrollments in outschool be funded by sources that aren't isn't the parents' pocket directly,、um, either through governments or schools、um, or employers、uh, as a benefit. Those are kind of the the kind of logical avenues to pursue. And you know, I, I think you know, philosophically, I think、um, you know, there's, there's clearly demand from from parents to pay out of pocket. Parts of education, but also, you know, it's a public good, and so that balance of、um, uh, funding sources for enrichment programs like OutSchool, I, I think, is is where we should be headed for.、Mm. Have you had interest from networks or groups of programs that? Are interested in using the marketplace to establish、um, virtual learning for a community that exists in person. So, in other words, if、uh, if the Girl Scouts of America wanted to create a hub in outschool or、um, Boys and Girls Clubs or or an organization like that, is is that something you all have considered? It's something we've considered, and I would love to do more of. I'd say we're very early、um, in that. You know,、mm. we've scaled the company to this point primarily as a you know direct consumer company. Yeah, and you know, it's much much earlier in our ability to figure out how to make that work.、Mm. Um, so yeah, that's the direction we want to want to go in. But I'd say you know it's early days. You know, yeah,、um, probably like ninety five percent of、um, the enrollments in our school are, are coming from the consumer side. Yeah,、um, but you know, I, I think we can't address the in, in enrichment gap unless we we figure that out. And in general, I think the future education 
um, it should be hybrid. Like I don't think any parent wants their kid in front of a computer all day long. Mm. <laughs> At the same time, it would be wrong not to give kids access to these amazing new tools and the ability to learn with kids outside their local environment. So, oh. um, you know, I, I really believe in this hybrid model of education, both in terms of funding um, and in terms of kind of the modes of education. And, um, uh, you know, that's why, you know, uh, you know the, the podcast name uh, uh, here is, is so applicable because I don't think there's like any one solution to any of these problems to rule them all. I think it's a, it's a patchwork um, uh, that's going to create the flexible education of the future. Yeah. Um, I love that. I love that metaphor. You said patchwork, but what came to my mind was, was, um, was, uh, well, I guess a form of patchwork is quilting, right? And if you've ever mm. seen a quilting circle, um, that's such a powerful metaphor, right? Because it's a, it's a very deliberate way of putting things together into, you know, from, from us, everybody contributing a small square to something that, that does something yeah. much larger. And I really love, there's something about the metaphor of uh, patchwork uh, and its purpose and, and sort of how it cooperatively gets done. Um, that interests me yeah. a lot. Uh, so I love, I love that you mentioned that. Um, uh, and you know, yeah. one thing, one thing that, that um, I think about a lot is um, in the way in which we create the system um, of education for the future. And you know, this, this patchwork, if, if you will, I, I think the, the only way this works is it's, is if it's built up organically. And I think some of our structures and the way we organize, even how we build companies, there's kind of like a, uh, that feels to be like a rub, like a discrepancy mm. between that and how like humans learn and, uh, and how the system um, uh, should be created. I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just feel like, um, you know, as someone you know, building a for-profit company in the space and talking to other um, company leaders in EdTech, we all feel this. Like there's there's mm. some kind of discrepancy between, you know, how we typically organize as humans, like our economy and how humans learn. And, um, you know, I don't know what the what the answer is, but, you know, my, my hope is that creating more organic, if you will, forms of learning uh, at a young age and people who grow up through that environment can actually help change our economy and how we organize as humans and, uh, and as adults. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've kind of sensed that or uh, heard that from, from other speakers, but uh, uh, it, it's a bit of a kind of ephemeral idea, but I wanted to raise it. No, I don't, I don't find it. Um, it is something that I think a lot about and I hear in different ways from different stakeholders. I think especially about um, young people who are at, of college age or, or <clears throat> rising, who are rising to college age right now. And I think that one of the things that the system has not um, built around that individual is the ability to mirror for that person what actually needs to happen in real life, which is that they need to explore and start to build a sort of credit and credential in whatever they're doing in those years, whether it's going to explore an internship or doing a year of college or whatever it is. And, and instead we have this very rigid, um, what's often perceived as a very a rigid pathway um, 
that doesn't quite fit that model, which is much more choose your own adventure and or do it yourself, however, however you want to call it. Right. Then yeah. I think the previous hundred years of K to 16 education, certainly in the U.S., have enabled us to grow. I think so. The point you make about things needing uh, having an emergent quality to them and needing yes. something that can come up organically around to substantiate the experience, whatever it is. If it's, you know, I'm going to go play club uh, baseball for a year and be a semi-professional before I go to college, like whatever those, the things are in, in the life's experience, how we track that back into a, a person, whether it's a young person or an adult back into um, qualities and skills that we're actually then parlaying back into jobs and roles in the community and other things. So Anyway, I guess if your idea was uh, ephemeral, mine, mine, I'll put an exponent to that and, and offer what feels like a, a big lot of philosophy. But, um, but I think this, what we're putting, trying to put a finger on is one of the things that makes me such a fan of, of what you all are doing at OutSchool. And, um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, is about the aspiration for adults. And we we're talking a lot about kids, but I wonder to what extent you think about adult learning and, and, um, you know, we always talk about learning being cradle to grave. Um, but mm. we don't do a lot institutionally to enable that, right? There's, there was a, a time when, and, and still, you know, quote unquote, ad, adult schools exist, um, but we haven't done much to sort of break down the walls between your your K to twelve or K to sixteen experience and what comes after that. So, are there aspirations there for you? I think I'd, I'd say I have aspirations there. I just think it's very long term for us as a company. You know, we get asked all the time yeah. of my parents, "Hey, can I attend class?" Yeah, that sounds interesting. And you know, the answer so far has been, you know, yeah. You can listen in mm. on your kids' class, but but yeah, you know, we don't do um, classes for over eighteen. And you know, the reason we want to focus, like there's just so much to do in K twelve education yeah. that you know we feel we can only bite off like one chunk at a time, and we're very focused on trying to do that piece really well. Mm. Um, but in the longer run, I would love to bring this format for, of learning to a, a wider group. I think one challenge is that. Sometimes um, in um, you know adult learning or career-based learning, there can be a very much because everyone's so short on time, mm. there can be very much a focus on immediate ROI. Yep. So it narrows the kind of like range of kind of subjects or things that people not that they want don't want to learn other things, just what they can spend the time on. Whereas, you know, for kids, like learning is their full-time job. And so we give them so much more space. And yet, um, you know, we have this human capital management theory underlying our education, which is that even for kids, like it's, there's this ROI that it's all about jobs and um, all about, um, uh, you know, some outcome. And I think if we can get to a place in kids' education where there's space given to the pursuit of interests for their own sake, um, then, um, and, you know, uh, people grow up with that just being, you know, a factor, major factor in their education, 
then we'll find more adults willing to invest the time um, to pursue interests as opposed to only do kind of career-based learning. Mm. So, um, you know, for us, you know, that, that's a kind of long-term aspiration, yeah. um, but, but it is there. Yeah. To, to the point we were making earlier about the, you know, I've heard you talk about um, OutSchool as a supplement to the institution, and I think that that's a great position. Um, I wonder what things you've had to do to accommodate that idea. And specifically, I've, I'm a little obsessed over time with the idea of, of credit, right, and how people credit learning. Mm. Are there things you all are thinking about or designing that are that help? So I have a 13-year-old. I want him to spend lots of time on OutSchool. Are there things that OutSchool is doing to help him bring that back to his school and say, check it out. I like, I've already done intro to graphic design and these other two courses. And I want that to be considered in my transcript. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great question. You know, from the start, we explicitly did not issue credit ourselves, Mm. but over time have tried to build more and more supports to enable out school classes to be used for credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what we're working on is to improve like the transcripts we provide and the tools that we provide teachers to in, in order for them to provide assessments and grades so that your son will be able to like take something more substantial mm. into school to say, hey, look, I did this. Here's the evidence I did this. Can this count for credit? Yeah. But like we don't see ourselves as the kind of credit granting institution. We think that's best left um, to schools. Um, yeah. And you know, our role is to provide the learning experiences, learning for its own sake, and then provide enough of the kind of like transcript evidence, ports, um, you know, assessment from teachers in order to be able to, um, you know, make that link happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish it was more joined up. You know, I hope to get to the point where, you know, I don't know, there's an API and schools could just like, you know, automatically uploading, you know, your, um, your son's kind of out school record into the school system and a teacher's checking your box and like, boom, that there it is. I think we're we're probably a, a you know a generation of technology and organizational sophistication away from that. You yeah, know, the patchwork needs to be kind of more tightly knit um, before we before we can make that happen. Yeah, we have. There's a lot in the way there, um, but that vision is one that I could I could wholeheartedly get behind. Um, you know, we've we've seen that technology work in commerce in so many different ways, right? Yes. This, and we've prioritized it there in so many different ways. Um, there's no reason it couldn't work in the context of K-12 education, but for the institutional boundaries we draw around what is and isn't um, uh, what isn't isn't learning, and what is and yes. and is doesn't belong in the the uh, student transcript. So. I'm I'm with you in that fight for sure to to not that that's not a suggestion that we need to start over with any of it it's it's that I think we need to be open to new prototypes and new ways of thinking about the potential there and how to capitalize on both of those contexts so anyway that's a little 100% <laughs> a little a little soapbox but um one of the things I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you about are challenges for you all right now. And, and so what's the challenge or, or challenges that loom largest for out school achieving success in 
firmly establishing a role in the education landscape? So, you know, I think the main challenge for us is making sure that we um, successfully respond to the changes in parent demand. So, you know, we are very focused on making sure we have, you know, really solid offerings in math and in English and in tutoring offerings, because that's where we're seeing the demand. Traditionally, the demand has been very kind of interest-based focus. Mm. And, you know, now we're working with our teachers to, to make sure that we re- really fulfill these, these needs that have always been there, but are now like much louder. I mean, families' minds, we need to do that really well. Um, and we're only just at the start of that. And then secondly, I think to um, achieve our aspiration of you know, both impact um, and scale, um, we, we have to be more, more focused outside the US and Canada. Um, and you know, we see these pockets of demand like in the UK and East Asia's, uh, East, Asia, um, uh, East Asian countries and some other parts of the world. And um, you know, we want to do a better job of actually you know, bringing those um, learners from those regions in and then having them attend, be attending class with, you know, kids in, in, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and, you know, it, it's tough because, um, you know, we had to scale up the company very rapidly through COVID. And we're, I feel like we're still learning and are still putting the systems in place to be able to, like, do a really good job of, like, analyzing the data, analyzing the trends, um, you know, bringing in the right um, academic and educational expertise, and making sure the platform stays safe and high quality, and so you know, we're really investing in those basics because, like, those things have to have to work. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know, I think generally the challenge today, as it has been over the past three years, is just change is happening very, very fast. Um, you know, we call this a normal school year, but you know, we've seen some of the challenges in the traditional school system with staffing, which leads to kind of jumps in demand at unpredictable points um, on our platform. Um, and when I look to the future, I don't know how um, fast uh, things like AI and chat GPT are going to have an impact, but I have a sense that you know, the next school year is not going to be normal either, whether it's because of like technology trends, you know, global health or politics trends, like the last few years have been um, a roller coaster, and unfortunately I expect that to continue. Mm. What's the, just to, I want to end with a little bit of, uh, give you an opportunity to, to put some vision out there when you think, I, I've only recently learned you have some little ones at home, um, when you think about a future for their schooling and what role um, the success of OutSchool might play in not just literally their education, so what they would do in out-school. But if you think about what paradigms out-school and its success could shift, how do you, what would be the ideal that you might see for your 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 young ones? You know, um, one of the uh, kind of major motivators in, of founding out-school was that you know, I didn't have kids when I founded the company, but I, I knew I was going to have kids and wanted kids. I wanted to build something for them. And you know, I'm delighted to say my four-year-old uses OutSchool and has like five OutSchool classes, you know, um, uh, spelling and reading and writing and and, and some math and mm. showtime and uh, circle time, you know, appropriate classes for a four-year-old. Um, and he loves it. And he goes to um, a part-time outdoor preschool. And actually, 
that I don't know how we sustain that uh, in the context of you know the normal school system. But for me, that is my ideal. It's kind of like almost a patchwork at individual level that there's tremendous variety in his learning. And I think with the speed of change in the world, that variety is really important because you know we don't know today what skills or knowledge can be the most important ones. Um, and so, you know, my goal for my own family is to provide, you know, a, a wide range and a wider range than, than a normal school. And, um, that probably means kind of a patchwork of different options and different institutions over time. Mm. Um, but I think it's, um, yeah, it's exciting because I think there's, uh, you know, there's, there can be some fear with all this change and then not being kind of established systems in place. But I think there's also a tremendous opportunity to, let learners lead. Um, I, you know, I believe that if we let kids give kids more space to pursue in, interests in different ways, that they can lead us. And that sometimes in education, there can be more of this idea that we have to figure it all out rather mm. than being a kind of collaborative co-creation process with a child. Um, and you know, my my hope is that. Um, over time and with resources, not only at school, but with many other resources that are being created, there are more and more options available for parents to pull in and, and create their own individual patchwork that works for their kid. Mm. I love that. Uh, and I can't think of a better way to uh, to finish our conversation for now. I do hope that someday you'll you'll come back and give us an update and and talk a little bit more about some of these ideas that that came up during the conversation, but Amir, I wish you continued success without school. And, uh, I am, uh, definitely, uh, rooting for your success. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to talking again. Air Team D Beats. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.